be taking a short break from the Gospel of Mark. We do this sometimes, and we've gone through it for a chapter or two. We've, we've actually gone through two chapters of Mark, chapter 7 and 8, and so we're just going to take a couple of weeks and, and meander through the Old Testament for a little bit. And so, kind of excited about this message and excited for what God has for us next week as well. Psalm chapter 11. Uh, as a side note, uh, many times I preach out of the Christian Standard Bible, and for the past month or so I've been preaching out of the Legacy Standard and one of the things you notice with the Legacy Standard, the one of the things I actually like, is instead of LORD, all caps, which if you don't know this about your Bible, the translators put that in there when it is the proper name of God. Now, we have not heard it, the proper name of God um, uttered in, in Jewish culture for centuries. They have such a, a sacredness around the name, they don't even want to write it down um, but as best we can determine, the name of God is Yahweh. And so in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, you'll notice, especially today, that Yahweh is used instead of the Lord. Now, if you don't have a Bible today, they're in the, the chair under you, and I'd ask you to follow along. Um, but it's one of those things, one of those translational things that that kind of makes the Scripture come alive. And so Every week, I don't just pick one particular translation anymore. I, I do still like the CSB. I like the English Standard Version. I like the New, Amanda, uh, New American Standard. Um, but I try to get something that makes the Scripture come alive as best we can for, for those who are hearing it and for uh, while I'm preaching it. And so if you've noticed that, if you've heard me say, Yahweh, when your Bible says the Lord, that's the explanation for you there. But... The title of today's message is When It All Comes Crashing Down. How many of you have felt in the last few years like everything's come crashing down, right? A lot of stress, a lot of stuff has, has hit the fan. But the point is, when it all comes crashing down, Christ is still king. The Christian can stand knowing Christ is still king. If you will, follow along with me in your Bible. In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Praise God. I'm just going to pray real quick. Father God, I just pray this message penetrate our hearts today. I pray that it Confirm what we already know to be true within your word. And Lord, I pray that it convict us and challenge us where we may have a false perception about you, about your character, or even about ourselves. Father, I pray your word pierce our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A while back, there was a political figure. I'm not even going to say his name. And he was talking to a crowd in a major city, and he made the comment, that when things get difficult, people in the Midwest, which that's us, 
They cling to their God and their guns. Now, you know what? He's not really wrong, right? We grab our guns because we want to feel safe in our home. And we run to God because we want to feel safe in our heart. Now, while it was meant as a kind of a derogatory statement towards those of us in, in the Midwest, I would like to point out he has no idea. Christ is not a crutch, okay? We, we often say, well, actually, he is our crutch, but he is more than that. In fact, if we understand the scriptures, Christ is not just a crutch. He's a whole castle we run into to hide in. That's what the, the message is today. That's what the text is telling us. Yahweh, in Yahweh, I take refuge. For the Christian, we read this and we say, you know what? Christ is not a crutch. He is our refuge. He is our judge. And he is our salvation. Do you want to, you want to say that when I get scared, I, I run into God and my guns? You don't even know how desperately I need my God. Right? So that's the main point today. If you're taking notes and you, you're following along, you want to write this down. Christ is not a crutch. He is our refuge, our judge, and our salvation. Now, when we read this psalm, this particular psalm, it's hard to read Psalm 11 without acknowledging what's come before it. Now, I'm going to sound like a Sesame Street character for a moment here. Um, not with my voice. I'm not going to try that. But it's important to know that Psalm 9 and 10 come before Psalm 11. And we see Psalm 12, Yahweh will set the needy in safety. It's important to know that psalm follows it. The placement of the psalms was not done lightly. When we read Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, we have to understand something about those. They, are, they have a very interesting history. Psalm 9 and 10 are so intertwined that in some early Greek and, and Latin manuscripts, they combined the two psalms together. Uh, but they, they really shouldn't be. When you, when you study them, when you read them, Psalm 9 is very clearly a hymn. It's a, it's a hymn of praise, and it's meant to be sang by an individual. Now, all the psalms can be sang by the church. There's nothing wrong with that. But its intention is for the individual heart. It, it begins with the psalmist saying, I will. Four distinct times he says, I will in Psalm 9. But the only reason the psalmist is able to write, I will, is because he, he acknowledges and understands, I will, because God has. He says, I will give thanks to Yahweh. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. But, but Yahweh abides forever. Yahweh has, he will. He has, and it goes on, and it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm of praise. But then we come to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is also meant to be sang by an individual, but it's not a song of praise. It's a lament. It's a song of sadness. It's a song of grief. It begins, and the psalmist actually believes, he, he begins by asking God, why are you so far away from me? And as we read on, we understand this psalmist is so terrified by the fact that God has moved far away from him, he's not even concerned with the close proximity of his enemy. He's more afraid that God has left than his enemy is invading. And that's something we should take to heart. Are we concerned with the nearness of God or the close proximity of our enemies? 
the psalmist, he feels afflicted. He doesn't want God to forget him. He seeks justice and knows that God will give him justice. But in the meantime, he is tormented by the wickedness of the world around him. And then we come to chapter 11. So we come into the psalm we're reading today, and we're going we're gonna to dive into that, but it is a psalm of faith. It's a psalm that we should go back to time and time and time again. When everything crashes down around us, I hope you remember Psalm 11 as a psalm of comfort. And we're going to see within this psalm the panic. It's not David's. It's the people around him, his friends, his counselors. The world is crashing down, and the people around David are panicking. They're scared. But for David, he will find his refuge in the Lord his God. And his refuge is, he says, Yahweh. For the Christian, we understand our refuge is in Christ. The Christ, God the Son. He is the one who shed his own blood for us. He gave his life as an atonement for our sins, for our own wickedness. See, for the Christian, Christ is our fortress. Christ is our judge. And Christ is the key to our salvation. He and he alone is our hope. Amen? We begin by seeing this fact of the idea of a, of a fortress, of refuge. Christ is our fortress of refuge. We see again in verse 1, In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now immediately we see this psalmist, what he's doing, we understand, we know it's, it's King David, right? He is staking his claim in the Lord. He says, in Yahweh I take refuge. Right out of the gate, he's letting you know where his hope resides. If God is on my side, everything else is moot. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. And you know, we use that word refuge a lot. We sing it in praise and worship songs and hymns, choruses. But what does it really mean? And I don't mean the Webster's Dictionary version. I mean... What's the, what's the Bible, what does Scripture mean when it says he's to be our refuge? Well, the Hebrew word is kasatai or kasati. And it means to flee to for protection, to put their trust, their confidence, or their hope in something. Like I said, he's not just a, a crutch. He's a fortress. He's a castle of refuge. The psalmist assures us, David tells us, my hope is in the Lord. His confidence is in the Lord. His rest, his solace is in the Lord. As Christians, we might read that and our, our minds might go to something like Psalm chapter two, which tells us, kiss the son, right? Christ is the son. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ is Lord. Christ is God. He is our refuge. We say this. We might even believe it in our, in our deepest parts of our heart, but too often we don't practice it. We don't follow through on it. If we're honest, more often than not, we will try every single thing else before we go to prayer. In Isaiah 22, the, the, the prophet Isaiah, he, he scolds Judah for doing this very 
thing. He talks to them. He says, you know, you guys defended the city. You had your chariots. You had your walls. You had your weapons. You had your soldiers. You even were bold enough and brave enough to tear down your own houses to reinforce the wall against the invasion. But you did not look to him who made it, nor did you see him who formed it long ago. See, so many of us, we read the Bible and and we want to be like David, right? We want to slay the giant, but we're not David. We're not even willing to do what David did to get what David got. We don't trust God like David did. That's why God calls him a man after his own heart and nobody else. Because David was willing to do what needed to be done. It's so rare that there be someone after God's own heart that way. We understand when he says, how can you say that word you is plural? It's meant for a plethora of counselors. Now, in the 300s, there was this bishop named Diodor of Tarsus. Tarsus, we know from Paul, right? Saul of Tarsus. But he wrote a commentary about this specific psalm. He said he believed it was a song that was sang when David was on the run from King Saul. That he was moving from place to place, from cave to cave, as the mad king was hot on his heels. And it's likely his men would have been counseling him. Anytime he went out in public, David, look, Saul's going to find you. We need to get back to the mountain. We need to run. We need to hide. Flee as a bird to your mountain. That's where David would hide. And Theodore concluded, he said, Even if movement is necessary, David is saying, nevertheless, let it be known that I do not hope to secure safety from those with whom I am constantly in opposition, except by hoping in God who can provide me with safety in every place. Now, maybe the old bishop was wrong. Maybe maybe David scribbled this down as he was fleeing Jerusalem from his son, the upstart Absalom. Maybe he was old and advanced in years and he was reminiscing about those days where he was on the run with his friends and and he wrote this down. We're not told. Whoever David's counselors were, though, we have to understand, they were scared. They were afraid. They lived in fear. The world is crashing down around David and they want safety. See, the difference between people like that and people like David, a man after God's own heart, is they seek safety in the mountain. David had safety in the Lord. I know what I'm saying, by the way. I know the the depth of this, and, and I hope you're understanding this message. It's not that we should not be careful who our counselors are, though that's true. It's not that we shouldn't listen to our friends. Actually, we should listen to our friends, our family. They care about us. They love us. If they do care about you, I don't know what kind of friends you have, but hopefully they do. But the fact is, what the Scripture is telling us today is that we trust God to be true to his nature, true to his word, to be our refuge in times of trouble. Movement may be necessary. You may have to go hide for a while. You may have to leave town. You may have to pack up and go somewhere. But in him, we have our hope no matter where we are. We have our trust in him. We have our confidence in him. That's not to say that 
David's counselors were evil or wicked. They probably had good intentions. And they go on. They say, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Well, who's the upright in heart? David, the righteous. His counselors, his friends, what they're saying is, look, man, you're in danger. The enemy has you in their crosshairs. They're ready to take you down. You've got to go. You need to take this more seriously, David. You see, David, when you really study the man, you understand he has a hard time getting the hint. He really does. I don't know if it's because he's naive or what exactly. Actually, I do. If you go back to 1 Samuel and you look in chapter 16, Saul had the spirit of the Lord depart from him. An evil spirit had come to torment him. And the only thing that would calm him down was David who would sing. He would likely sing psalms to Saul. And the madness of the king would be halted if but for a moment. But then there's this guy named Goliath of Gath. And he comes to town and he begins to threaten Israel. And David goes out when no one else is willing. And he, we know all the story, right? If you've watched Sports Center, you've heard the story of David versus Goliath. David takes him down. And along the way, after this great military victory, Saul overhears women singing, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. And the mad king goes crazy. He cannot stand it. His jealousy of David reaches a boiling point. And so later in Psalm 18, Scripture tells us, now it happened on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. Now some translations say he prophesied, but when you study that word, it's, he's mumbling to himself. He sounds like he's manifesting a demon. He's crazy. He's saying weird stuff. He's not prophesying. He's ranting and raving like madmen do. Now David was playing the harp with his hand. That's how you play the harp. Thank you, Bible writer, right? Ah, there's a reason. And a spear was in Saul's hand. You see, the difference is already right there in the word of God. Saul was a man of war, but he was a man who wanted fear. David was also a man of war, but his hand was on the harp because he's a man of worship. You see, you can go to war and want victory, or you can go to war and want God to get the victory. That's the difference between these two kings. Saul was a man of violence. David was a man of worship. Then Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now hold on just a minute here. If I throw a spear at you, that's a big, big message. Please leave, right? If I'm at your house, if you, if you ever say, Pastor, we'd like you to come over. We're going to have uh, hot dogs and macaroni. We'd love to share the meal with you. And um, that's not my favorite meal, but okay, I'll be there. And you pull up a gun and you shoot at me, I'm leaving. If you hit me or not, I'm gone, okay? Now, if you pull that trigger twice, I didn't get the hint the first time, right? That's basically what's happened here. Saul has had his spear in his hand, and he says, I'm going I'm to kill David. I'm going to pin him to the wall. And he throws it. 
And David, probably being the younger guy, was quick enough to evade it. I don't think Saul had bad aim. But he dodged the spear. Well, the scripture doesn't tell us, did David look at it and go, hey, what's the big idea, man? No. Probably just went back to playing his harp. But why would he do that? Because he's afraid of Saul? Because he's naive? No. Because David understood the promises of God. He had been anointed as a future king by the prophet Samuel. So he understood something here. Saul is already the anointed king. And if he wants me dead, then I'll die. But if Yahweh wants me to be king, I'll rise again. You see, Saul trusted in his spear. David trusted in the Lord. The wicked may bend their bows. They may have their arrows ready to shoot. We see this imagery in other Psalms, by the way. In Psalm 37, 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Psalm 64 says, uh, the wicked have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from places of hiding at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him. Now this gives us insight into what David's experiencing. And maybe you can relate, maybe not to the magnitude of David where it's literally life and death, but how many of you have felt as though someone has aimed their tongue like a, a pointed arrow to slaughter your character? They've gossiped about you. They've slandered you. How many of you have had people have not your best intentions at heart when they've done things, right? And you might pray. You might say something like, God, I was doing everything right, but it sure feels like everyone's against me. You might pray like, God, I keep banging my head against the wall and I have not seen any kind of breakthrough. Lord, I give it all I, I've got to this person. I love them. I cherish them. I, I, I try to do what I can, but they still treat me like garbage. I show up to work every day. I volunteer for overtime. I budget, but I still can't get ahead. Ever been there? Ever feel like that? When you're in those no-win situations, that's where David's at. Can't get out of the hole. Can't catch a break. And what do people counsel in those situations? Run. Move, find a new job, file for divorce. Anytime, and you know, there may come a time for that if there's been marital unfaithfulness. If you're being abused at your job, there may come a time where you, you have to go, right? Movement may be necessary, but yet the Christian trusts in the Lord. Even if the very foundations of the earth are destroyed, still I will hope in him. But the counselors, see, they, they thought of that. Verse 3, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what can the righteous do? You can pray about it, right? The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's what James tells us. Philippians, Paul writes to them, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What can the righteous do? I don't know. Only talk to the most powerful being in the universe. And guess what? He's on your side. Seems like no small thing. He can intervene. What else can we do? Well, we can 
find comfort in his promises. We can stand on the truth of his word. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So we can stand on that. Revelation, and we kind of sang about this in the, in the, hymn, in the song service this morning. Revelation holds the ultimate promise for the Christian. John writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, right? For these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, they are done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He will, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You understand, if you are in Christ, you are an overcomer. You may not feel like it. It may not look like it. But he is your refuge. He is your castle of safety. If we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors. That's what Paul said. In fact, he actually made up a whole new Greek word. I'm not going to say it this morning. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's what he says in Romans 8, 37. That's powerful. But yet, you know, we want to hang our heads and live in defeat. We sing songs like, someday I'm going to see the king. We sing it more like a funeral dirge than a war cry. No, I am going to see my king. Nothing's going to stop me from that. Death itself couldn't hold me back from that. When the world around us is crashing down, the Christian does not flinch. We stand upon the truth of God and we say like the psalmist would later write, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty, at its lofty pride, we stand in him. In his truth, we don't back down. The counselors around you might say, well, what if the foundations shake? Oh, the foundations are breaking? Let me tell you something. I serve the one who laid the foundations of the universe. I don't care. I'm not scared. I will not be shattered. Oh, the enemy has his arrows aimed at me. (laughs) Big deal. Ephesians tells me I've got a shield of faith with which I'll be able to extinguish the arrows of the devil himself. Let them try. You know what? I may be defeated ultimately, truthfully. I may, I may die, but I'm not going to be destroyed because one day there will be a trumpet call and on that day I'll rise again in a glorified body and I will be in the presence with, of my king until that time comes. What is the worst thing this world can do to us? It may crash. Let it crash. Yahweh is still on the throne, and in him I take refuge. In Christ, I am victorious. He is more than just a simple crutch. He is my fortress. He is my refuge. And Christ is our judge. Verse 4 goes on. It says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. But you know what? That does not mean he is distant. 
That doesn't mean he's a God who's far away. In fact, the psalmist affirmed, David affirms later very much the opposite. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I can't even hide from you, God. Why would you want to? His eyes behold, his eyelids test the son of men. There is nowhere to hide from him. And the only reason you would want to is if you're wicked. If you're in rebellion, if you don't want him to notice your sin, unless you have malicious intent. Remember, it's the wicked who bend their bow. Job tells us the murderer arises at dawn, he kills the afflicted and the needy. And at night, he is as a thief. The eye of the adulterer keeps watch for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he keeps his face hidden in the dark. They, <clears throat> they dig into houses, they shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. The type of person Job is describing is someone who does not want their evil deeds exposed. They have no desire to be seen so they can remain wicked. And they try to remain hidden, but God sees them. God is not ignorant. He is a righteous judge. He is also a fair judge, and they will get their reward. But the follower of Christ remains strong steadfast. That's why Proverbs tells us, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues pursues evil will bring about his own death. Paul challenged the Corinthian church. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But that's hard. That's a difficult thing to live with. Let me tell you something. If someone told you that Christianity is easy, they lied to you. Christianity is not for the wishy-washy. Nowhere in your Bible will you see where it's, it, Jesus says, come to me and just do what you want. Nowhere will you see Jesus come to me and stay living in your sin. That's okay. You don't see that. Listen to me on this, and I, I pray you hear me on this. Paul says we are to be mature in our faith. That means being consistent in our faith, not tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The best kind of Christian is the steadfast, stable Christian, the consistent Christian. Now, you may have bad days. That's human, right? We all may have our ups and downs. We may even have our moments of doubt. But if you look at your Christianity or someone else who loves you enough to give you the truth comes along and they say, you know what? You are all over the place with your faith. That's not mature Christianity. That's not what we are called to be. It's time to grow up in Christ. Amen? Now this is going to rub people the wrong way. This is something I want to challenge you with this morning. Don't listen to a sermon hoping that it affirms things you already believe. Let it challenge you. Let it grow you. Let it push you. And even if it offends you, let it be the word of God that offends you, not, not the preacher. If I say something that upsets you, just come and talk to me about it. But if this rubs you the wrong way, maybe there's a reason for that. But church-hopping Christians are weak Christians. They are not mature Christians. They're like plants. They never put down their roots. They never get... Uh, they, they, never really 
grow because they get knocked down and then they pick up and they move on to somewhere else, right? That's not a mature Christian. There's another type of Christian. And we don't like to talk about this, but they're very real. And I would call them the bipolar Christian. I don't say that to make light of a mental health issue, but let me explain myself. Talking about a spiritual issue. One week, they're as high as a kite. They're in love with Jesus. They're worshiping. They've got tears running down their eyes. They run to the, to the altar. And the next week, they're in a depressed pit. There's, there's no in-between with this type. They're hot. They're cold. They're up. They're down. They're all around. That is a spiritual issue. That is unstable. That is not mature Christianity. That's what James and, and Paul are talking about, being carried about by every wind of doctrine. One week they're on fire, next week they're ice. Or there's the shallow Christian who never seeks to learn. I don't mean the simple faith Christian. I mean the one with shallow faith. They want to suck milk off the teat without ever getting into the depth of Scripture or having a deeper prayer life. And then we have those antifreeze Christians. They'll drink poison. They'll drink the bad theology, bad doctrine, because it tastes sweet. And just like antifreeze, it will kill them. I'm sure there's plenty of others, but it's weak, deadly Christianity. It is not what we are called to be. We are called to be mature in our faith. The God we serve is in his holy temple. He does not change. He does not waver. He does not quit when things get too hard. So we have to stop shifting gears, stop being tossed around, put our roots down, Stand firm and conquer in his name. Amen. The world around us may crash. The stock market may fall. World War Seven may happen. But Yahweh does not move from his throne. He is consistent. Habakkuk said, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He tells Jeremiah, I search the heart. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. David agrees with this. He goes on, he says, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. His soul hates. If you're in a time of testing right now, this message is definitely for you. Are you righteous? Are you in Christ? If so, in the time of testing, Rejoice. Shout hallelujah. Praise God. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James tells us. If you're being tested, there's a reason. God is growing you. God is strengthening you. He is building you. Proverbs reminds us, and Hebrews also confirms this. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. It is for discipline that you must endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's what testing is. That's what trials are. That's what tribulations are. Peter tells us to rejoice in trials and testing. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we understand that the testing brings us closer to him, we should rejoice in our troubles, in our trials, in our testing and tribulations. This is why Richard Wormbrand, who was a martyr for Christ, he actually spent 14 years of his life in a communist prison because he preached the gospel in Romania. And he once said, I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Because those are Christians who know how to suffer, how to suffer in Christ, and most of all, to suffer for Christ. We don't like that concept in the West. We get very comfortable. But go with us to Mexico on the next mission trip. Write a letter to one of the missionaries on our wall by the stairs. Ask them, how is it that Christians in a country who have nothing can be so happy? I guarantee you the response will surprise you. And you know, it's easier to find a miserable Christian in the West than it is anywhere else in the world. In fact, I'd tell you that Miserable Christian is an oxymoron. It should not exist. The joy of testing belongs to the righteous. Before I move on, I want you to catch one thing in this psalm. Note in verse 4, it says, His eyelids test the sons of men. And then in verse 4, The Lord tests the righteous but the wicked. That can also be translated, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The repetition of tests and tests, though, it, it's saying that God is the one who takes the initiation here. He's the one who has the initiative. He's the one who moves. He's the one who watches us, not the other way around. He is still, not in his position, but in his concentration, in his watching. His time of testing is also a time of patience, of waiting. It gives the righteous and the wicked, a time to repent, a time to grow, a time to expose who they really are, where their faith truly resides. And now, even if you're sitting here or watching online, maybe you're saying, I don't have God, and my life's pretty good. It won't always be that way. Sometime there will come a time of testing, and we have to understand, where is our faith? On that day of judgment, Paul tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the truth is, at that time, it will not matter what you own. It will not matter what you have, how big your bank account is, how good of a person you were. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You can do it now willingly, or you will be forced to do it at that point. I don't say that to scare or intimidate you, but you can confess Jesus Christ as Lord now, or you will have to then. If you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, do not wait. Do not hesitate on that. If you've not submitted your life to him, to the belief that he died on a cross to atone for your sins, that God raised him from the grave, if you have not done that, you have no part in him. That's the fact. That's what the word of God tells us. And if you don't know him, today's a day to change that. You understand, we are all under judgment. One day we will all face judgment before the God of heaven and earth. And the only difference between 
the one who is in Christ, the one who isn't, is if Christ stands before them on that day. The one thing that will stand between Christian and an unbeliever is Christ will stand between them and the Father. The unbelievers on their own. You see, he's not a crutch. He's a righteous judge. And he is our salvation. Verse 6 says, May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Now we may read this at first glance and we might say one of two, maybe three things. We might look at that and say, Yeah, God, get them. They deserve it. They've made my life horrible. Get them. Sick them, Jesus. Right? Or we may read that and say, Hang on a second. What about that whole love your enemy thing? Right? Someone once, I was doing discipleship with a young man and he came to me. He says, you know, I've been reading in the Psalms. Sometimes it's like, yeah, this is really good. Other times, I don't know who hurt this guy, but man, he wants them dead. Yeah. You know what this tells us about worship? It's okay to pour out your heart. It's okay to say what what you really want to God because he knows already anyway, right? Why scripture in context also becomes very important. Most of you have heard me say many times, context is key, right? Now, some of your translations may read coals or fire rather than snares here. Some of you may not care about this, but it's actually very interesting. What I learned about this is there's actually the NASB, the LSB, they go to a different text to translate the Hebrew than the ESV, CSB, uh, NIV. Um, Around 1000 to 1500 AD, some in the Jewish community began to go through their, their Hebrew writings and they kicked out all the extra canonical books, the books you don't have in your, in your Old Testament. Um, Dan Brown likes to call those the lost books of the Bible. They weren't lost, they're trash, okay? They're garbage, that's why they didn't make the cut. But they went through and they took those out and they tried to get back to the original Hebrew, the original meaning. And so the NASB and the LSB have tried to replicate that and the ESV and the NIV and the CSB and some of the other translations, they use a more uh, recent Hebrew text. But if we understand the text, Either one is fine because the text doesn't lose its meaning. Here's what I mean, okay? If it's fire, coals, fine. If it's snares, that seems to sit better with other psalms, even within the the context, because snares are typically something someone sets in the psalms, but they end up falling into themselves. Fire or coals are just a sense of judgment. And this is a judgment of what we are to understand here This is a judgment they have brought upon themselves by their own wickedness. It's it's likely, I I believe it's the word snares was the the right word to use in this psalm, but but it it fits with other psalms. Like Psalm 119, 110 says, The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not wandered from your precepts. Psalm 140 says, The proud have hidden a trap for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set snares for me. Psalm 141 Keep me from the jaws of the trap, which they have set for me, and from the snares of workers of iniquity. Again, David's basically saying here, they will fall victim to their own traps, their own machinations, their own inventions that they've devised for wickedness. And then we go to Psalm 7, which David also wrote. 
And there's a parallel between Psalm 11 and Psalm 7. In fact, it even begins, Oh, Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. We've heard that today, right? So we know there's this theme here. But David goes on in Psalm 7. He says, He's dug a pit and hollowed it out and fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, big deal. That's great. That's okay. But do you know what a snare is? How many of you, raise your hand. You know what a snare is? Yep. The family of fur trappers know what a snare is, right? Uh, I'll explain it for those of you who don't. A snare is typically a type of rope. Modern snares used in fur trapping are usually made of wire. And an animal will unknowingly walk into a snare. And the more they struggle, the more they try to escape, the tighter it gets. It's like a noose until eventually they suffocate themselves. Unless you're like my dad trying it out for the first time. You just go there and the beaver is just hanging there looking at you. You know, that happened. That's a funny trapping story. I'll let him tell it. But the more they fight the snare of their own making, the wicked will find things get worse. The more deadly the snare becomes. The same as with fighting against God. The more they fight against God, the more they flirt with death. This was the issue with Saul of Tarsus, with with Paul. I referred to him already a few times, but he goes before King Agrippa and he begins to tell his testimony. Now you can read what Luke records actually happening in in Luke 9. But in his discussion, his dialogue with King Agrippa, Saul gives a very interesting tidbit of information. We haven't read before in in the book of Acts as as you've gone through it. He says he encountered a bright light that tracks. The light's so powerful, it knocks him to the ground. That That's the thing. But then he hears this voice saying in, in Hebrew or some translations say Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you have ever heard the Johnny Cash song, The Man Comes Around, you've heard the King James Version. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Well, that's, that's what he's referring to. And what, what is the goad? Well, he's referring to an ox goad, and it's like a short spear that would go on, on uh, the, the prod when the ox would be plowing. And by kicking against the stick, by kicking against the goad, it would drive the pointed end of that stick deeper into the meat of their body, and it would hurt. It would hurt the animal's leg. In essence, what Jesus is saying to Paul, is the more you kick against me, the more it's going to hurt you. The same way, when the wicked lay a trap for the righteous, when they lay a snare, it's only going to be them that falls into it. And it's going to cause their death, their suffering. That's what David's driving at here. Their rebellion at some point will turn against them. It may not happen this side of the grave, but it will happen on the other side. And he's going to illustrate their suffering by invoking one of the most harsh punishments the Old Testament records, fire and brimstone and burning wind. And we first read about that in where? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire fell from Yahweh out of heaven. That's Genesis 19. We see it later in the greatest judgment upon the earth in Revelation. And ultimately, if anyone's name is not written in the book of life, They'll be thrown in the lake of fire, which in the chapter before that, Revelation 19, we're told it burns, it burns with brimstone. It's an old name for sulfur. 
So the portion of the wicked, they don't get everlasting joy. They don't get happiness for eternity. They don't get to experience the presence of Christ. They don't want that. They've desperately, God is going to give them what they so desperately wanted all along, eternity apart from the holiness of God. Understand, someone who spends a lifetime rejecting him, it would be cruel, cruel of God to force them to spend a billion, billion, billion lifetimes in his presence. David may sound harsh, but really what he's asking God is to be faithful to his word, faithful to his own judgment, to complete what he's promised to do. He's going to destroy evil. He'll be completely burned up in his wrath and judgment. Oh, Pastor Jeff, we need to preach more about grace. We need to talk more about love. Love, 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 right? You have to understand, I am. It is unloving of God to give them anything else. This is what they've lived their whole life wanting. Paul tells us in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. It is unloving to not make this clear. You're telling me if I don't get saved, if I don't join up with Jesus, I go to hell. Absolutely I am. And guess what? If you go to a doctor and you've got a brain tumor and he doesn't tell you you've got cancer because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings or scare you, you need a new doctor. If your engine's going to explode, but your, your mechanic doesn't want to tell you because, hey, the price is a little high to get that fixed, you need a new mechanic. And if the pastor doesn't warn you about the consequences of wickedness, of sin, and all that it entails, and that there is a hell waiting for those who do not accept Christ and submit their lives to him, the pastor doesn't love you or care. So I'm here and I'm pleading with you, if you've not made that choice to follow Christ, today's the day to do so. The news is crushing, yes. The price is high, yes. But the good news is Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners, just like me, just like you. And if we do not repent and believe upon him, we will suffer the snares of our own making, the price of our wickedness. The last verse says, for Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Understand that is the good judgment. That is what we strive for. That's what we look forward to. The upright will behold his face. You understand, nobody looks at the face of God and lives. That's what God told Moses. But the upright get to eventually. We look forward to that day when we hear the master say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. You are to now have many. And this connects to the idea that he judges righteously There's going to come a time when Christ sits upon his throne and Revelation tells us that it calls it the great white throne of judgment. It's great because it's huge, but it's white because it's not contaminated by sin and neither is the one who sits upon it. He is righteous, he is holy, and he is pure. And he will be the one who judges the nations. He'll be the one who judges the living and the dead. And every book will be open. And I've already mentioned this. If someone's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, we're thrown into the lake of fire. 
You see, the truth is Christ cannot tolerate wickedness. To do so would be unloving. It would be unjust. So the upright behold his face. The word upright, by the way, is the Hebrew word yashar. And it means the correct, the just, the pleasing. But that's not the only meaning. And that shouldn't be a source of pride for the Christian. Because the other meaning is stretched, level, and smooth. You understand, being stretched is not fun. You ever gone to a physical therapist and they make you stretch in ways your body doesn't normally move? Very uncomfortable, right? You ever been made smooth? That means there's friction. That means there's sanding. There's parts of you being chipped away. For a table to be made level, there needs to be cutting. There needs to be sawing, right? Right? There needs to be pruning, and that means testing. That means pain. That means it all may come crashing down. But what makes us the upright, what makes someone righteous, is being able to take that sanding, take that grinding, the saw, and be able to stand with David and say, in Yahweh, I take my refuge. He is my salvation. Or we bend. We break. Do you take refuge in him today? Have you given him your life? Or do you say, Lord, take my life, but not my favorite part. Take my life, but not that thing. That part of your life is an idol and it will not save you. Only Christ can be your true salvation. I'm going to move to close in just a second. But if you're here and you're saying, you know what? My life has gotten off track. Christ is still a place of refuge. Maybe you're watching online and, and this message has hit you hard. Things have come crashing down. Christ is still king. Maybe you've been good, but you know life could be better. Christ is still judge. He's still the source of our salvation. And we're not going to do a, an altar call this morning, but I would challenge you this. Take time to pray. If you do want to come to the altar and pray, you are more than welcome to. doesn't have to be here in the sanctuary, but take time today and ask the Holy Spirit, search me. Seek what's inside me. What have I not given to Christ? What is an idol in my life? What is something that's slowing me down? What am I taking refuge in that is not him? And then pray for strength to remove it. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online, you're saying, I'm not in Christ. If you're watching online, reach out to us through social media. We'd be happy to pray with you. We'd be happy to call you, pray with you. If you're here and that's you, grab the hand of the person next to you and say, will you pray with me? You pray with me. I need to submit my life to Christ. But please do not stand up and walk out of here and go downstairs and enjoy the potluck and leave this building today not knowing where you would spend eternity should that time come. Christ came to save sinners. Do you believe that this morning? Stand with me as we close in prayer. If we believe it, we must live like it. What you believe about Christ will be reflected in every aspect of your life after you leave today. And while you're here, by the way. Your life imitates your theology. Believe that. Father, today I pray that you're convicting hearts for those who are watching online, for those who are here, for those who will listen to this later. Father, I pray you speak to us. If there is a place in our life, maybe it's our family, maybe it's our work, 
Maybe it's a possession or a favorite thing to do, like sports or, or watching TV. I don't know, entertainment. Maybe there's an idol that we're clinging to and we're saying, Lord, you have all of me, but not yet that part. I pray we get strength from you today to let go of that. To seek you first. To cling to you. That you be our refuge. Because you are our judge. And you are our only source of salvation. Father, I pray you are glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen.